have found the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. All right, Mr. Prime Minister, you are out there someplace. Yes, I am in Israel, not someplace, in a very definite place. Good to talk to you, Larry. <laughs> Thank you, sir. You know, you may not remember this. I mean, I want to talk about your great book. Uh, uh, it's called Bibby. It's just my story, Bibby, uh, out and about. But you, you may not remember this. Jack Kemp introduced us when you were, I guess, either running for finance minister or you were finance minister. And then a second time, Ronald Lauder had us to dinner at the old Mark Hotel, and we talked about supply-side economics. And it turns out you governed as finance minister and then multiple times as prime minister as a free market guy, and you liberated the Israeli economy. So I want to say congratulations, and I'm very proud of you, sir. Well, you're very kind, and you had some influence. Jack Kemp, too. I remember that he said to me, uh, I have only three things to tell you. Lower taxes, lower taxes, lower taxes. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> and we did that. And it works. It did work. So um, the Israeli economy has become one of the best in the world. Yes, it has. We have uh, – look, uh, I inherited – I described this in my book, uh, among other things. I uh, had a clear vision that to survive the Jewish state has to be strong. To be strong, it needs a strong army. To keep a strong army, it needs a strong economy. To get a strong economy, you have to turn it from a semi-socialist state to a free market capitalist state. Uh, To do that required dozens and dozens of reforms that uh, uh, basically liberated the genius uh, and enterprise of our people. So having done that, and it's politically very difficult to do, as you can imagine, uh, it was, uh, Israel's GDP per capita that trailed all the Western European countries, and certainly America by far, has now uh, surpassed Japan's, um, France, Britain, and uh, recently Germany, too. So we're, we're on the right path, and uh, God willing, in a few days, I'll be informing another government, and we'll continue on that same path. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Prime Minister, uh, what, you know, what, what else, what new reforms, and can I just ask you also... Uh, Israel is right nearby some major deposits, if I'm not mistaken, of oil and natural gas, which would make it a terrific powerhouse and would add to the economic story. Can you talk about that? Well, actually, I describe in, in the book one of the battles that I had to fight was to get the offshore deposits of natural gas under the seabed in, uh, in the eastern Mediterranean in our territorial and economic waters, uh, I had to get them out of the sea. And I couldn't because I had this, you know, this uh, ultra-radical progressive wing that said you have to keep it, uh, keep it in, in the sea for environmental reasons. I mean, environmental reasons, this is the best way to replace coal if you have natural gas and so on. Uh, we had to fight that. I did. I won. And now we're exporting gas to uh, uh, to uh, first of all, to uh, the Palestinians of Jordan nearby, but uh, in addition, what I intend to do is lay a pipeline to uh, uh, LNG plant in uh, nearby, probably in Cyprus, and export massively to Europe, which I think would very much welcome that uh, event. So we we've turned Israel not only into economic independence but into energy independence, and it's it's a big thing, obviously. Well, and it would presumably enormously strengthen your hand in all manner of uh, peace 
or war or politics in the Middle East? Yeah, I think that uh, we have uh, we have that coming anyway, because uh, with President Trump and his team, uh, I changed the equation. Everybody said you can't make peace with uh, the Arab countries unless you first solve uh, the problem with the Palestinians. The problem with that is the Palestinians don't want to solve a problem with Israel. They want a peace without Israel. They they don't want to state next to Israel. They want to state instead of Israel. Uh, and so if you wait for them, you'll wait for another quarter of a century, another half a century, until we could get another peace treaty in addition to the ones we had with uh, Egypt and Jordan 25 years ago and, and, and before that. Uh, I said, let's go directly to the Arab world. Uh, and we did. And we got four peace treaties with uh, the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain, with Morocco, and with Sudan. And if you ask me what are my plans, well, I think we should expand it. And the most important country that we could expand it to it would be a quantum leap, would be uh, Saudi Arabia. And I think that would effectively end the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, which is uh, about 98% of the Arab world. And it'll leave the Palestinians who are still recalcitrant, and I hope we'll get them in, in a genuine and realistic peace too. But this is, this is something that's definitely uh, on my uh, dashboard. And whether we can achieve it, of course, depends on the Saudi leadership and others, but I think there's a real chance. Prime Minister, how important was your working relationship with Donald Trump on the Abraham Accords and other matters? I think it was vital. I mean, uh, President Trump was a great president, a great friend of Israel, I have to say, uh, a great uh, uh, champion of uh, breaking breaking the rules. Somebody asked me how would I call him, and I called him irreverent. He was irreverent in the sense that he was out of the box. He, he wasn't committed to the, uh, you know, to the uh, stayed uh, and, uh, I was going to say, tried uh, and, and failed narratives of the past. So he was open to other things, and that was very important. He uh, recognized Jerusalem uh, as our capital, which is kind of uh, late in the game, but no president did that before him. Uh, 3,000 years ago, King David proclaimed Jerusalem as our capital, so it's about time, you think. He moved the American embassy there. He recognized our sovereignty in the Golan Heights. He withdrew from the disastrous uh, Iran nuclear deal that paved Iran's path with gold to a nuclear arsenal uh, and gave it hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, all these things were, were fine. It doesn't mean we didn't have disagreements, but I uh, am appreciative of the fact that he did these things, uh, and I'm, I'm glad to state and restate that. Uh, Prime Minister, can, um, can I beg your indulgence? I need to take a quick commercial break, and then I'd like to come back and talk some more about your new book entitled Bibi, My Story. Are you okay with that, sir? Absolutely. All right. I appreciate your waiting. The name of the book is Bibi. We're talking, of course, to the great Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back with much more on Mr. Netanyahu. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are talking to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has graciously agreed to stay a while longer. The name of the book is called Bibi, My Story. It's hot off the presses. Um... Prime Minister, you are, of course, famous for proclaiming the need for peace through strength. Uh, I might add, I myself worked for Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump, both of whom agreed with that view, peace through strength. The biggest threat in your area is Iran. Uh, can you talk to us? What are you saying in the book about Iran? How will you approach Iran now in your next term as prime minister? Well, 
I'll do everything in my power to prevent Iran from having nuclear weapons, but that's not only because they threaten to annihilate my country, Israel. It's because they chant death to Israel, death to America. They call us the small Satan. They call you the big Satan. Mm. And in fact, uh, you know, all nuclear proliferation is bad, but it makes a hell of a difference if Holland has nuclear weapons or the Ayatollahs have nuclear weapons. Uh, the Ayatollahs are... Uh, a theological thuggery. They oppress their own people, and the whole world now uh, has uh, seen Iran's true character unmasked uh, thanks to the incredible courage and bravery of these Iranian women and men who are dying in the streets for their freedom. And this regime that subjugates their own people threatens to uh, uh, annihilate my country and threaten and blackmail you uh, because they're, if they were uh, given the the wherewithal to develop intercontinental ballistic missiles, which they're working on, and to have them uh, tipped with nuclear warheads, which they're working on, uh, that would change uh, history. It would be a pivot of history, a pivot of catastrophe. And therefore, my battle is obviously for, uh, for my country, the one and only Jewish state, and we won't let these ayatollahs erase uh, uh, four millennia of Jewish history. But it's also for the, for the future of our common civilization. You cannot have Iran, uh, the worst enemy of our civilization, have nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them to every American city. I've devoted a good part of my life, and by the way, uh, uh, a very uh, big part of my book, mm. to this ongoing battle, some of which I describe. I can't describe all the things that we've done. I describe how I sent one operation, the Mossad, into the heart of Tehran. They found a dilapidated warehouse. Uh, where Iran was hiding its secret atomic archive. They broke into the, the safes. They knew which safes contained the material. Uh, Spilfered away half a ton of material. If you saw Argo, this was Argo on steroids. Yeah. Because thousands of Iranian security personnel mm. were chasing them uh, throughout uh, Tehran, but they got out. They brought the material to Israel. I brought it to uh, President Trump in the Oval Office. Uh, and I was delighted when the president left that deal. But it's an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing battle to prevent Iran from having the wherewithal to threaten all of us. And, of course, they are the prime sponsors of terrorism and murder throughout the Middle East and probably everywhere in the world. And yes, and they now send killer drones to Ukraine. So mm -hmm. you, you know – you, you know something – nothing good will come out of the fact that they'll be able to uh, get a nuclear, uh, nuclear arsenal, which they will if this deal goes through. And they'll get it with, uh, you know, with uh, basically the international seal of approval of uh, a P5 plus one, what they call the, uh, the major powers of the world, uh, giving their blessing to this course, which basically kicks the can only a few years, but gives Iran – uh, sanctions relief that is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. That's folly, the height of folly. Mm. I'm opposed to it. If you want to know, and I talk about it, what will stop a rogue regime from having nuclear weapons? The answer is the only thing that stops it is not an agreement which they cheat on anyway uh, and won't stop them even if they don't cheat. What stops them is the combination of, of uh, crippling economic sanctions mm -hmm. and, most importantly, an irreplaceably a credible military option. That's what stopped Iraq from doing it, Saddam Hussein. We stopped him. That's what stopped uh, Syria, 
uh, from developing a nuclear weapon. We stopped them. That's what stopped Gaddafi, Gaddafi, an American threat, and he volunteered, didn't even have to be attacked. But it didn't stop North Korea because nobody actually had that uh, over their heads. So they are, you know, now half of Asia is quaking with fear. They can threaten Japan, and they may very well threaten the west coast of the United States very soon. North Korea is an anthill compared to Iran. It is uh, a neighborhood bully, but it is not a global ideological uh, force that is absolutely opposed to our way of life, our freedoms, uh, our values. Do not let Iran have nuclear weapons. I don't understand, Prime Minister, why the uh, Biden administration is making the same mistake the Obama administration isn't trying to make a deal. I don't understand it. I just don't get it. It makes no – for all the reasons you've said – for all the reasons when I worked for Trump, I tell you what, sir, will you let before we answer that, let me take a hard break. OK, uh, and then you'll come back and talk some more about that. And also, I want to talk about your own brave service uh, in the uh, Israeli special forces. If you could just stay a little bit more with us, folks, we're talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu. The name of the book is Bibi, My Story. It's a riveting book and you can hear the prime minister's points of view. We'll be right back. I'm Kudlow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows granger has got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are still here with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has graciously agreed to give us even more of his valuable time. He has his new book out. It is called Bibi, My Story. He's a world-renowned figure. Everybody knows who he is. It's a terrific book, a good, long read. Uh, Prime Minister, thank you for this. I want to go back to this point. Uh, the Biden administration is making the same mistake, it seems to me, that the Obama administration made. They want to make some kind of nuclear deal with Iran. As you yourself said, the Iranians, of course, always lie and cheat. They never tell the truth. This would entail a deal would entail lifting economic sanctions, providing hundreds of billions of dollars to Iran for which they will use to do nothing more than making great mischief in the region and around the world. Now, I know this is a delicate matter. I'm not trying to upset the diplomatic uh, apple cart. You're going to be prime minister again, and the, uh, but Mr. Biden is the president. But I don't understand any of that logic. Why would anyone want to do that? Well, this, is, this, was, excuse me, this was a point of uh, uh, disagreement, sharp disagreement between President Obama and myself, I respected the president, but I disagreed with him. And I described in my book how I made a very tough decision to uh, take on an invitation <coughs> excuse me, to address the joint session of Congress and to challenge the, uh, uh, in 2015 the Iran nuclear deal. <coughs> By the way, the, the worst time I had was uh, the evening before. My sinuses were clogged. I couldn't finish uh, mid-sentence, any mid-sentence practicing the speech, so I got up in the morning having not slept a wink, made my way to the Capitol, 
And lo and behold, right when I saw the Capitol steps, my sinuses cleared for a few hours, <laughs> like the body re- revelation. The waters had parted. <laughs> I gave the speech. I have the <laughs> same back. sinus uh, problem, by the way, sir. <laughs> so I well, get it. it. You know, you, but it was an act have, of God. Uh, God wanted you to be in shape for this. You have to have divided <laughs> intervention, at least at least there was in this case. So, uh, you know, we disagreed then. And, uh, you know, my sense is that although there seems to be or there seemed until recently to be uh, continuity in, in this policy uh, with the, uh, President Biden's administration, I sense that there's a change probably because of the uh, unfolding events in Iran that are so uh, extraordinary. Uh, and and so, frankly, inspiring uh, the battle for basic human freedom that uh, the the brave citizens of Iran are putting forth. That I, I think that's been put on hold. Uh, I hope permanently. Uh, I intend to bring it up with uh, uh, President Biden, who's been a personal friend of mine for the last 40 years. Again, not because we've not had disagreements. We have, but we respect and like each other. So I intend to bring it up with him in the first available opportunity. I mean, one of the things I find troubling is that the uh, senior people in the Biden administration uh, at the NSC and the State Department and so forth, and the president himself, uh, never talk about the Abraham Accords, never talk favorably. They have a euphemism for it. And the Abraham Accords were a great achievement between you and President Trump and the other members, the Arab Gulf states who joined in. But it always seemed to me like the Bidens are giving a cold shoulder to the Abraham Accords and keep playing footsie with Iran. And um, to me, that defies any common sense, and it certainly defies any strategic sense. I mean, will they help you in your judgment, or will you ask them to help you to broaden the Abraham Accords, for example, to bring the Saudis in? Because I frankly think this Biden's have bungled relations with Saudi Arabia, and the Saudis are key. Well, I have two, uh, two immediate goals. One is to block Iran's quest for nuclear weapons, uh, continue to block it, because I think the actions that uh, Israel has taken uh, – over the years that my governments have taken, uh, set back Iran for at least a decade, mm. but they're still pursuing it. So the job is, the jury's still out on all of us. So one thing is to block Iran's quest for nuclear weapons. That's a global interest, not merely an Israeli interest. It's certainly an American interest. And the second one is to uh, further expand the circle of peace and effectively end the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I hope uh, that uh, uh, I can find in President Biden, any American president, uh, a partner for these two uh, extraordinary causes. I think they're both doable. In terms of uh, expanding this Abraham Accords, isn't um, open trade and investment a key part of this, you know, cooperative economic development among the countries involved? Wouldn't that be a key part of this? Well, it is. It is. This is what is happening. You know, before that, we had what I'd call a cold peace between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Jordan. That is, we're non-belligerents and we go and see each other and so on. But our economies didn't mesh. But my vision of the peace with the uh, Gulf states and under the Abraham Accords 
was that we actually have a peace between our peoples, our business people, our entrepreneurs, the tourism. It's extraordinary. What has happened is almost defies imagination. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis are flying over the skies of Saudi Arabia today. So you understand Mm. that the Soviets certainly do not look askance at these agreements, and that gives hope for the uh, for the future, for the immediate future. But look also what is happening. There are billions and billions of dollars of um, of uh, joint ventures, of common business uh, enterprises that are uh, happening, which is, that's really creating the fabric of a genuine peace that we all want to see. And if you ask me, can this be expanded with Saudi Arabia? It won't be just expanded. It'll make a quantum leap if we can get Saudi Arabia. And from there, I believe the rest of the Arab world in. It would change history. All the meetings that I was involved with uh, in the Oval, but with David Friedman and Jared Kushner and many others, I would always emphasize open trade and investment. And the fact is you are a free market guy. So I think it's right up your alley. You understand the growth impact. But nothing will heal better than a prosperous region. Don't you think, sir? I mean, prosperity is a crucial part of this. Poverty is the enemy of peace. Prosperity is the friend of peace. Absolutely. Uh, not only do I subscribe to it, I've uh, f- uh, formulated my policies uh, on that line. So, first of all, within Israel, you know, free up just uh, must have passed about 80 or 90 market reforms that uh, catapulted Israel into uh, a frontline juggernaut state of innovation. And by the way, you have to understand that's as I describe in my book, you know, most people think that the key to economic growth is education and technology. It's not. Uh, you can be highly educated, uh, as in the former Soviet Union. They had fantastic metallurgists and mathematicians and physicists, and they produced damn all. But the minute one of these uh, able people was uh, smuggled out to Palo Alto, he was beginning to uh, generate wealth within days. Mm. Uh, so, you know, mm. what gen- free markets, uh, mm. I would say differently. I would say that education and uh, technology do not produce wealth. Free markets do. But if you have a combination, as we do in Israel, of free markets and technology, then uh, that's an unbeatable, uh, an unbe- unbeatable combination that uh, uh, skyrockets the economy, which is what we've done. So now what I want to do with that, having achieved it in Israel, is to have that same uh, melting, if you will, of interest uh, with our neighbors. And that's definitely happening with uh, the Gulf states, and I believe it can happen with others as well. Mm. That really produces the kind of genuine peace, peace from strength, and as you say, peace from prosperity that uh, betters the life of everyone. We're talking to Prime Minister Bibi Natanyu, his new book, Bibi, My Story, uh, hot off the presses. He's very kind and gracious to give us time to talk about this. Um, Prime Minister, I did not know that you went to MIT. All right, that's new information. In fact, I don't really think I knew you lived here for a good long while, and a lot of your education was in the U.S. That's new information coming out of the book. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, I spent uh, uh, my high school years and uh, my uh, uh, my university years and uh, well, high school years outside Philadelphia and uh, my. Uh, university at, in Cambridge, Mass. I 
came in after five years of military service in the Israeli army, so I was sort of older than all these hotshot kids at 18. <laughs> I decided I have to brush up on my math and physics and discovered that at MIT, in those days at least, all you had to do to finish a semester was take the final test. So I took the test and I passed, and that's how I got rid of two years uh, out of the undergraduate and then went to the Sloan School, the business school at MIT. But the real education I got in business was uh, in uh, the Boston Consulting Group with a genius, a real genius, called Bruce Henderson. Oh. He called me into his office. You know Bruce? Yes. Did you ever meet him? Yeah, I have. Yes, indeed. Yes. He was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. He was really extraordinary. Huh. And that's where I really learned the fundamentals of how, how economies are made. They're made by firms. Firms create the value, mm -hmm. the added value in, in the economy, a lot more than government bureaucrats. Mm. So you have to create a policy that is... Uh, that is hospitable to firms and to competition. But the first day I got into uh, the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, Bruce Henderson calls me to his office, uh, and I was a fresh recruit. I'd never worked in business a day. I was a military officer, for God's sake. I mean, I knew nothing about business or economics. And he said to me, uh, you know, I know you're going to go back to your country uh, and probably be very soon. So learn everything you can here while you're here, because one day it will help your country. And I thought this man was absolute bunkers. Mm. You know, I was 27 years old. What was he talking about? But he was absolutely right. And it served me well. I think it served Israel's economy well. Yeah, well, you had the rudiments of, uh, actually, those are rudiments of free market supply side economics. You have to look at, economics should be looked at through the firm. Successful firms create jobs and wages and improve family incomes. It's not governments, it's businesses that do it. You can't have a healthy job with a good paying uh, wage unless you have a healthy business. Boy, there's a debate about that right now in this country as well. Um, Prime Minister, tell us also, I, I was not aware, uh, you uh, fought in the special forces of the Israeli Defense Forces, the special forces uh, called the unit. Uh, I don't think I. I don't think I knew that. I don't think many people knew that. So you've served your country in many different ways. Tell us about that. Or tell us as much about that as you can. Well, I, I joined a, a special unit. It's kind of a, it's hard to describe this, but this is a, a tiny unit of about a hundred fighters. Uh, we ended up being three brothers in there. My older brother uh, my, and my younger one, and. and in a unit that's somewhat like a combination of Navy SEALs, hmm. SAS, and, uh, I don't know, uh, Delta Force. I don't know. But it's tiny. It's, uh, it's a special unit, and one of the best of its kind in the world. Uh, and uh, uh, I ended up uh, staying there for five years as an officer. I was wounded. Uh, I, I crossed into beyond enemy lines in many clandestine operations, but I, I had my brushes with death. Several times I nearly died in a firefight and nearly drowned in the Suez Canal in the midst mm. of uh, mm. a, t a terrible firefight uh, where I lost a good friend. Uh, I uh, uh, was shot. I was wounded in the rescue, the first uh, actually uh, storming of a hijacked aircraft in history. Uh, and we successfully uh, liberated uh, the hostages in Tel Aviv. When was this? Uh, when, but, was this uh, was, when was this, Prime Minister? When was this, Prime Minister? This was 1972. Wow. And uh, after that, I left this unit. I uh, left. I was a, 
uh, released as, a, as an officer uh, and went to study at MIT. My older brother remained in the unit, became its commander, and four years later, the terrorist, uh, the Palestinian terrorist who had tried to uh, uh, land the airport in Tel Aviv and were, d- were killed by us, decided uh, their successor decided that they could get away with it if they land in the heart of Africa. So they hijacked an Air France mm. plane full of Israelis and Jews, uh, landed it in Entebbe Airport in Uganda, mm. and figured that there's nothing Israel could do. Well, they were wrong. So my brother, my older brother, Jonathan Yoni, landed uh, with his uh, uh, with soldiers from our common unit uh, in the dead of night in Entebbe. He led his force, stormed the uh, old terminal where the hostages were, killed, were kept, killed the terrorists and the Ugandan troops aiding them, destroyed the MiG fighters who could have given chase to the transport planes that uh, were carrying the hostages and the force back to Israel. But unfortunately, uh, there was only one military casualty in this uh, raid, uh, and that was my brother. So he, uh, mm. he gave his life at that point uh, to, uh, uh, to the country, and that obviously uh, changed my life. It, uh, it was the, uh, I would say, so uh, uh, agonizing and so difficult that I didn't know that I would actually uh, live or how I would live. But somehow I found the strength uh, uh, through inconsolable grief to, uh, uh, to pick up where my older brother left off. He, he never thought that this battle against terrorism was merely a military battle. He saw it as a civilizational battle, a moral battle, and a political battle. Uh, and, uh, and I went into, I left the Boston Consulting Group and devoted a few years to uh, a public effort to change the way that uh, Western countries thought about battling international terrorism, specifically directing them to fight the states that harbored mm. the terrorists, because mm. without state support, terrorism, international terrorism collapses. You need a sovereign territory. If you don't have one, you try to make one the way ISIS tried. You need a state or states. And so uh, I devoted some years quite successfully to change Western policies, especially under President Reagan, who um, you mentioned before. He read a book that I did based on conferences that I had organized. Uh, and with the help of George Schultz and others, uh, American policy changed to an active, proactive action against terrorist states. Uh, and from there, I, uh, from public policy, I moved into uh, uh, into diplomacy, and from there to uh, politics. So now I'm still in the messy bog of politics, seeking to promote policy. Politics is necessary for policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're inseparable. I would just say, personally, it's interesting to hear you refer to Reagan. I worked for Reagan. I was the economics deputy in the Budget Bureau back in those days. I was a child. But Reagan, Reagan had an enormous impact on my political and economic thinking. And, of course, that was the day, those were the days when I worked closely with the late Jack Kemp, who was a very dear, dear friend. I mean, actually, in many ways, uh, Prime Minister, so it's over 40 years later when I went to work for Trump, but the Reagan thoughts, the Reagan principles were still always uppermost in my mind. So I understand that. And so you're really, you've been driven by this public service ethos it kind of started from your own experiences as a soldier, it sounds like, in the Israeli Defense Forces, and you've never let up on your views 
on peace and uh, and terrorism and fighting it. I mean, that's what it sounds to me, and I guess that's what the book is trying to say. Is that right? Am I being fair here? I think you're being fair, and I think it actually starts before that with my father, who was a great historian of the Jewish people. Wow. Uh, and uh, he, he instilled in me uh, uh, my life's mission, which I also inherited from his father, uh, and obviously my fallen brother. That is that... Uh, the, the mission is to assure the uh, permanence uh, and future of the state of Israel by mm-hmm. strengthening it, uh, uh, strengthening it militarily and economically and diplomatically. But I have lived a life of purpose, mm-hmm. and I think that one of the things that people can glean from reading my book are insights into how they can achieve a life of purpose, which I believe is the the only life truly worth living. It's wonderful. Great sentiments. Folks, the name of the book is Bibi, My Story. We have been speaking for the last 45 minutes with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, a savior of the state of Israel. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, I can't thank you enough for your time and your patience and your contributions, sir. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you, Larry, and thank you for your friendship and your wise counsel. I do remember those dinners. <laughs> More to be revealed. Take care. Folks, we're going to take a break. I'm Larry Kudlow. We will be right back after these numerous commercial breaks that we've obliterated in order to speak with the prime minister. Larry Kudlow. 